Good morning. The first reading for this morning comes from Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. And the second reading for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Good morning. I am Stephen, not Anthony. I I hope that's clear. (laughs) Now, this year... um, We've been getting our kitchen renovated. If you're a regular here, you've heard me complain about it at multiple points throughout the year. But it's a, you know what these jobs are kind of like. They, they take far longer than you think. And so we saw a lot of the guy who was doing our kitchen. He's the kind of finished job. And this guy who was um, doing the cabinets in our kitchen, he knew I was a Christian. And so one time as he was working away on the kitchen as I was painting something, I asked him, what do you think God's like? And he says, I don't know. Do you mean like to look at? I said, no, not to look at. What do you think he's like? his character is like? He said, I don't know. I've just got nothing. And it wasn't an awkward conversation or anything like that, but he just had nothing that he felt he could say. And as I've reflected on that, I thought, wonder why it was that he felt like he had nothing to say. As you know, we um, asked a whole heap of people this question, what do you think God is like? And it actually turns out this kind of answer, I don't know, is actually one of the top answers. And as I've thought about it, I reckon there's probably three 
reasons why people answer like that. So first, some people, you know, they think there just is no God. So how do you answer when you're asked, what do you think God is like if you don't think there is a God? But second, some people, they think, well, there probably is a God, but they just don't think you can know anything about him. And then third, I reckon some people think, you know, there is a God, you probably can know something about him, but I just don't think it matters all that much. Maybe you had a conversation with someone like that. Maybe one of these three is kind of how you feel, captures a little bit of how you feel. So today I want to give us just a taste of a couple of reasons to think that God does exist. A couple of reasons to think why God can be known. And just a couple of reasons to think why he is worth knowing. A well-respected philosopher called Alvin Plantinga He gives 12 arguments for the existence of God. We don't have time to do anything like that today. Today we're just going to scratch the surface. So first of all, let's let's look at a couple of reasons why we can know there is a God. When I was in high school, I actually didn't want there to be a God. I looked at my parents who believed in God and I wanted to be different to them. And then I looked at the people who were in in high school with me and, and I wanted to be like them just seemed easier for them and and more fun certainly it seemed easier for them to get a girlfriend and so for a time I, I I tried on trying to reject the idea of God my parents growing up they weren't very academic uh, dad went to about year 10 and he was a, a carpenter for the railway mum had only made it to year nine at school and so their reasons for believing in God didn't seem very academic to me back then but I was I was different to them. I was pretty good at school. I was especially good at physics and maths and that sort of thing. And as I was studying biology and evolution, for a while it seemed, it felt like it'd be pretty easy to be convinced that there's no God. But even back then, even even though I was telling myself that the smart thing to do was, was to ditch God, I kept being pestered in my mind by the inconvenient presence of everything around me. And the basic logic that it demanded an explanation. It wasn't even just the beauty and the the complexity of the world that made it hard to throw off that feeling that there must be a God behind it. Mind you, there there was that too. I um, grew up in a beautiful place called Kiama in New South Wales. It's amazingly beautiful. Around this time of the year, um, I'd go camping with my friend and we'd hike down into these gorges, down these huge cliffs to crystal clear creeks. And around twilight, the fireflies would lift up from the forest around us, flashing on and off, floating in the air. It was sort of like magic in the fading light. You know, the beauty of it can't be captured by a photo or even by words. And to think that their existence was just random, not orchestrated, not designed, not actually beautiful in any real sense... You know, that, that defies a, a deep, basic logic. But actually, for me, the problem was even more basic. The existence of anything at all presented a problem. Where does stuff come from? Even the Big Bang doesn't explain it. It just kind of makes the problem bigger. And you can't kick the can down the road forever. Even back then as a teenager, I realised eventually you have to grapple with questions like, why is there something at all? Why isn't there just nothing? 
when I was young, my, my sisters used to watch The Sound of Music over and over and over again. And the song that I hated the most in that show um, had a line in it that would always get stuck in my head for some reason. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Now, I still have no idea what that line has to do with Maria and Captain Von Trapp's creepy relationship. But I remember at the time, it kind of summarized how I was feeling, why I was finding it hard to ditch God. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Now, The Sound of Music is is hardly a kind of sophisticated philosophical work. But later on in life, I discovered that there are really strong evidences that back up this basic kind of logic that most of us can sense. For example, a well-known physicist who apparently was at Adelaide Uni for a while, Paul Davies, he explains the coming into being of the universe, as discussed in modern science, is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organisation upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. Other physicists have have proven that any universe which is on average in a state of cosmic expansion like ours is, that it can't be eternal in the past but must have an absolute beginning. One of the, the physicists who proved this, he writes, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning so an atheist might want to say the universe is just eternal and that's that but that really is a blind faith kind of belief and there's heaps more that goes with this but what it comes down to really in the end is this which makes more sense that the universe popped into being uncaused out of nothing or that there must be a god outside the universe who has caused it to come into being. And modern mathematics, modern physics, they don't contradict God. They end up aligning with what has always been declared when we we step outside at night and look up at the night sky. Psalm 19 puts it poetically, which we heard before. The heavens declare the glory of God. Verse 3, they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the earth. See, sometimes the simplest and most obvious explanation is the right one. There must be a God. And this is even clearer when you consider the, the way that the universe is fine-tuned for life. Scientists have found that the odds of there being any life at all are so extremely tiny that this begs for an explanation. An early discovery of this kind was by an atheist um, mathematician and astronomer called Sir Fred Hoyle. And it was to do with what was required for carbon atoms to form, which are needed for life. And he found that if there was a a 1% variation in a phenomenon called resonance, then the universe could not sustain life. And Hoyle, he later confessed that nothing had shaken his atheism as much as this discovery. Even that degree of fine-tuning, which is not that much actually, it was enough to make him say it looks as if a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics 
as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces in nature worth talking about. Since then, though, scientists have seen that the fine-tuning of our universe is far, far more significant than that. Paul Davies, who we heard before, he he talks about a a different kind of fine-tuning to do with the ratio of different forces. And he says that the precision needed to sustain life is like the kind of accuracy a marksman would need to hit a coin on the far side of the observable universe 20 billion light years away. I mean, these numbers are so huge that your brain just can't get our heads, our brains can't get our heads around it. To hit a coin 20 billion light years away, that kind of accuracy, it's, it's crazy. And there are many examples like this showing just how ridiculously unlikely it is that a universe that can sustain life like ours would randomly occur. Now, a lot of the mass and the physics of this goes over my head. But the point is, there are good reasons to believe that this universe is designed by a creator. Paul Davies says, it seems as though someone has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. And to get around that impression, uh, sometimes people will say things like, well, there must be a, a theory of everything that explains why it had to be this way that we just don't know yet. Or they might say, it is, it's, it's just random chance and, and, and we're just incredibly, incredibly, incredibly lucky that it is this way. Or you might hear people say, well, there's an infinite number of universes out there and so eventually it just had to be this way. But there's no evidence for any of those three things at all. And so again, in the end, you have to have blind faith to hold to these kind of explanations. But surely the obvious explanation is is the more reasonable one. There must be a God. One of the reasons as a teenager that I was struggling to ditch God, even though I wanted to, was because I just didn't have the faith I needed to believe that the universe just existed eternally of its own accord or just popped into existence on its own. I knew that that wasn't logical. But another reason I I struggled to ditch God is a bit of a change in gears for us. I came to realise that if there's no God, if everything is the end result of meaningless forces then how can anything be considered objectively right or wrong? I mean, I might consider something right or wrong, but in the end, how can that be more than just personal preference? Or even if a whole society agrees on something being right and wrong, how is that anything more than just a societal-wide preference? I came to realise if there's no God, there's no solid basis for right or wrong. Now, my um, brother-in-law, who's an atheist, he hates it when I say this. Um, I ask him how he can explain his basis for what he believes is right and wrong, and he kind of gives it a go without God. But everything he says to me, it boils down, in the end, to personal preference. And I point it out to him, and he gets annoyed, and he has another go, and I say, it's still personal preference, and he gets more annoyed. Without God, there just is no solid basis for morality. Now, I'm not saying if someone doesn't believe in God, then they can't be a moral person. Of course they can be a moral person. But what I'm saying is their belief 
in mor- morality itself is not logically consistent. Now, it's not just me or other Christians that say this. For example, an influential atheist called J.L. Mackey of Oxford University, he admitted, if there are objective values like this, they make the existence of a God more probable than it would have been without them. Thus, we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of a God. But in order to avoid God's existence, Mackey denied that objective moral values exist he wrote it's easy to explain this moral sense as a natural product of biological and social evolution in other words morality is just an illusion created by evolution and this is exactly what a philosopher of science called michael ruse says he says i appreciate that when somebody says love thy neighbor as thyself They think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory, an illusion. Now, on the one hand, I appreciate that kind of honesty, that they're willing to admit what many people aren't, that without God, there is no objective morality. But on the other hand, I I can't help but think they have a kind of self-delusion going on. Rape and murder and genocide, they're not to be shunned because by shunning, shunning them, that will help us survive and reproduce. They are to be shunned because they are actually evil. Not because I think so. Not because most people would join me in thinking so. But because there's a God who gives right and wrong the only possible foundation that there is. I struggled to ditch God because I saw that our choice comes down to this. Either right and wrong is real, and so God is real, or God is not real, and what you consider right and wrong right now is just an illusion. For me, it's absolutely clear which of these two best describes the reality I see around me. There must be a God. So we've seen there are good reasons to believe that there is a God. But just knowing that there's a God doesn't mean that you can know much about him. And this brings us to our second point. There is a God you can know. You know, some people think, you know, even if there is a God, why on earth would we think we can know him? We're just a speck on a planet that's just a speck in a universe. So why would we think we can know God? And I agree, I agree there's no way we can reach up and drag God down and study him and understand him. But what if it's not like that? What if God himself chooses to make himself known, not by us reaching up and dragging him down, but by him reaching down to us? Because that's exactly what Jesus claims to be doing. One of Jesus' closest followers, he says about him in John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says in verse 14, which we heard before, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then in verse 18 he says, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. 
Later, in John 14, verse 9, Jesus himself says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The claim is that we can't reach up and know God, but God can reach down and is reaching down and making himself known in Jesus. Now, there are good reasons for believing that what we have in in the New Testament, in the Bible is an account of what really happened in the life of Jesus. Like we have evidence from outside the Bible that actually confirms what we have in the Bible. Like one source is a Roman historian named Tacitus. He's a historian who hates Christians, and yet his writings confirm what we have in the Bible's account. In about 115 AD, he wrote about the fire that happened in Rome in, in 64 AD under Emperor Nero, who blamed the Christians for the fire. And Tacitus writes, Christus, or Christ, from whom the name had its origin, Christians, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, that's Christianity, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. So Tacitus, a careful Roman historian, confirms the Bible's description of events. Christ founded Christianity in Judea when Pilate was prefect of Judea. It happened after the execution of Jesus. The movement spread from Judea to Rome. All of that is also what we have in the Bible. But the greatest evidence that Jesus is God reaching down to make himself known actually comes from within the Bible itself. In the Bible, we have people claiming to be giving us eyewitness accounts of what happened. And there are good reasons to actually take their claims seriously. Like, for example, the way the eyewitness accounts talk about Jesus in the same way they talk about historical people and events. The Bible talks about Caesars and governors and events that you can verify from other sources and even archaeology, and it talks about Jesus and other Christians in exactly the same way. In other words, the people we meet in the Bible aren't legendary or, or mythical. They are real and historical. Another reason to take the, these accounts of Jesus' life seriously is because the letters and the biographies about Jesus are actually written incredibly close to his life and death. Did you know that um, between the life of Buddha and then writings about his life, it's a gap of over 350 years? Or about the Roman emperor Tiberius, the gap between his life and then writings about his life is 77 years. The gap between Jesus and the first writings about his life is only 20 years. You know, the people who heard and saw Jesus were the ones who wrote down what they saw and heard. There's, there's better evidence for the life of Jesus than the life of any other ancient figure in the world. Another reason to take the accounts of Jesus' life seriously is because of the number of independent sources about Jesus. The number of independent sources about Jesus in the Bible are numerous. You know, for Augustus, the, the greatest Roman emperor who ruled for half a century. Almost no sources survive. But for Jesus, a nobody from nowhere who died an unimportant death, there are stacks of sources 
And all of them say the same thing. All of them speak of Jesus who is called Christ, the Son of God, crucified for sins, raised alive from the dead. There is so much historical evidence that we have to ask the question, how did this man, Jesus, a sociological nobody, generate all these writings about him when someone like Augustus generated almost none? How did Jesus start something that that grew so quickly? It's still growing today as well. Why was it that the followers of Jesus left behind were not only willing to spend their lives telling people about him, but were actually willing to die horrific deaths for what they believed happened? You know, people, people will die for lies, but what they won't do is die for something they know is a lie. Why was it that these people were willing to die for this? It's because they truly believed it. So the question for us is, why were they so convinced? And there's, there's enough evidence when you look into it properly to see that in the end, there's only two things that can explain it all. Jesus really is raised alive from the dead. Jesus really is the Son of God, making God known. Which means there really is a God we can know. Now for me though, the reason I, I, um, I stopped eventually trying to ditch God out of my life wasn't because I just kind of you know, balanced the ledger and kind of went, yep, on all probability there's a God. You know, it, it was more than that for me. For me it was that I realized that the words of Jesus, they can't be the words of a mere man only. The way that Jesus understands the human heart and understands the human condition, the way he understood my heart, my condition, the way his, his words have turned the values of this world completely upside down, the way without violence or, or manipulation he gives individuals and multitudes real joy, real meaning, real purpose, real forgiveness, real life, the way Jesus makes sense of, of all the mess of this world as well as all the beauty of this world, all the complexity of this world, The way Jesus gives a foundation to science itself, to morality, to art and beauty. For me, I couldn't shake the realization that Jesus is not only unlike any other person in fiction, he's unlike any other person in history, and yet there he is in history for all to see. You know, having toyed with the idea of ditching God, I realized that because of Jesus, I could not only see that there is a God. A God that can be known, but there is a God worth knowing as well. And this brings us to our final point. There is a God worth knowing. See, I came to realize that um, life is not meaningless. That everything has a meaning and and a purpose because of Jesus, even when I couldn't see it myself. I came to realize that life has hope. Which, when you think about it these days, is a huge thing. Never have we been in a time where we are so well off, where we have so much free time, so much food, so much leisure and great living conditions, and yet never have people felt so helpless and hopeless in the face of climate change, in the face of terrorism, in the face of technology and AI. So many of us feel helpless, hopeless. But knowing God means we can have real hope. We can know someone who has all of these things in hand. And I came to realize that 
God is worth knowing because I could know his love personally in my own life. God's not distant. He's not out there somewhere. He's knowable. And he wants to be at work right here and now in our lives, in your life. And this is where all the evidence takes you in the end. You know, God says to you, not only do I exist, not only am I knowable, but I want to know you. You know, by becoming human in Jesus, by dying for our sin, by rising to life to prove it, by making it possible for you to, to hear this news. That's what God is saying to you. About 25 years ago, that was when I, um, I came to see that there really is a God. You can know him and he's worth knowing. And through all sorts of great times since and, and some hard times since, that hasn't changed for me. You know, like a, a few years later after seeing that, my mum died of cancer. A few years after that, I got married, started work. Good times, bad times, things like seeing my daughter uh, born preemie, things like hitting midlife, which will happen in the next 20 years or so. <laughs> Through all that, nothing's changed except I can tell you even more confidently than back then that, that there is a God, He is knowable, and He is absolutely worth knowing. One of the best things, um, if you're not sure of that, if, if you, you've not kind of reached that conclusion, one of the best things you can do is, is look at the evidence for yourself. Like I said, we're just barely scratching the surface today. But it is absolutely worth looking at the evidence for yourself to see, is there a God who is knowable? Can he make a difference in my life? And one of the best ways to do that is to come along to our life series, which is all about helping people explore Jesus for themselves. It's about considering the evidence for yourself, asking the questions that you need to ask. Come along. Bring someone along with you. It, it starts on a Monday night in a couple of weeks' time, on November 6th. It's the best way to see for yourself that God really is knowable and absolutely worth knowing. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that not only are you there, but you are knowable and absolutely worth knowing. But help us to see, Father, most of all, that you want to know us. Help each and every one of us to, to truly know you, no matter where we're at in our journey with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.